0: Tonight's reading from the New Testament comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-13. through 13. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and that he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons would be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be first tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus." This is the word of the Lord.
1: Okay, let's join together and pray. Father, we ask that you might come and show us uh, the beauty of your church, even your church government, particularly the leaders that you've set aside. And we pray that you would give our minds um, newness of life, newness of thought, by your Holy Spirit. Teach us, Jesus, Jesus, In Christ's name, amen. This past week, Meg and I were having dinner with some friends, and we began to talk about the topic of leadership, and the wife made, I thought, a very insightful comment. She said, it seems like in our culture, um, power and authority tend toward just one question. Who has it? Who's got it? And so we live between these poles of grasping for power and hoarding power. And we began to talk about how does that change when someone enters into the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Because it should. For example, in our culture, authority is often to dominate, and the misuse of power is used to remain in power. But when you enter the kingdom of Jesus, authority becomes primarily given to serve. Jesus talked to his disciples about this, right? There was that time where they were vying for authority and power. And he said, listen, it's outside in the culture, in the world where authority is lorded over people, but not so with you. For you, the greatest will be the servant of all. And again, in the culture, worth is often made equivalent to title and position. So if I don't have a title and position, I don't feel as valuable. However, in the kingdom of Jesus, role and value are not synonymous, they're not equal. Because we understand that value is first and foremost understanding that you've been made in the image of God and after His likeness. That's where value rests. In God's eyes, a president has no more inherent value than a plumber. And then also in the culture, limitation is often seen as injustice. If I don't have access to an opportunity, if I don't have gifts, again, if I don't have this uh, title. But in the kingdom of Jesus, limitation is actually instruction. It teaches us about God. In fact, we see God himself... Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, limiting Himself, becoming a human being and living in a lowly way. There's something more going on in the kingdom of God. There's something that we're missing. We need God to teach us a new way to think. Because we too, myself included, are very shaped by the water that we swim in. We smell like a smoky room. And so as we talk about theology in life, and tonight we move to this idea of church government, and I'm going to say a little bit more about it next week, so I can't get to it all this week, but particularly church leaders, let's focus upon the character of God's leaders and the roles. Okay? The character and the roles. Now this past week, I read an article in the Harvard Business Review, and it was about Corruption. And it told the story of a CEO of a large consumer goods brand. And through the years, the pressure, the duties, the competition, all the things that he was facing, he began to pull away from his colleagues, began to pull away from his friends, pull away from even his children. And what those noticed around him said, he seems to have suffered a loss of empathy, when that before was his most dominant trait. You know, leadership, the crucible of leadership, will tempt you and try you to lose yourself. So be careful what you wish for. And as we look at this passage here, if we thought about the mere opposite of the qualities we're given, it's basically many of the qualities that cause people to fall publicly and morally. right? Folks that can't be faithful to their marital commitment. Now, in another translation, Paul will say, you know, I want elders to be a one-woman man. You know, husband of one wife doesn't mean you can only get married once, but rather it talks about devotion and faithfulness. Or another reason people fall is financial misconduct. Another reason is addiction to alcohol or drugs. Another reason would be loose words. And many of the qualities that Paul lists for leaders really could be summed up the ability of self-control. Isn't it true that you can have great mastery in a lot of areas? Uh, You can be masterful at an instrument, masterful as an entrepreneur, masterful as a stateswoman or a statesman. You might have the power to overcome a nation. The hardest mastery is self-mastery, right? Self-control, being able to care for ourselves, and so... Paul would say leaders of Christ need to resist being controlled by pleasure, by drink and by sex, controlled by security. There would be finances. That's where we look for security. Controlled by getting your way, anger and gossip. That's why we use anger and gossip to manipulate and get our ways. Even being controlled by independence, the need to be independent from committed community. A blues singer and guitarist Robert Cray has a song called Poor Johnny. And in it, he, he has this line, to his friends he was king because he thought of everything except as number one. She had the kids in the house while he was always out leaving his homework undone. Right? This idea of a leader in the church needs to begin with his closest relationships, his covenanted relationships, and be faithful there first. I'm under no illusions That my effectiveness of a pastor and any fruit that my life might bear in your life flows out of my commitment to this woman, Meg, to be clear, Meg. (laughs) Uh, If you're a visitor, you're like, which woman, which woman, Meg? (laughs) uh, And my children, right? I mean, that's where it flows out of. Um. And so, you know, leaders have to prioritize relationships well. And I love that it includes reputation with outsiders, too. Because it's easy sometimes within the church to go, well, you know, really it really doesn't matter what the world thinks because they don't embrace this faith. And Paul says, no, it, it actually does. It matters that one has a faithful reputation. So we're not one person at work and another person at our community group on Wednesday night. There was something else I read this week that stuck with me. It was talking about companies that are successful avoiding corruption. And they said those companies actually don't focus on corruption itself. They focus on the things that make you vulnerable to corruption. That's what their their view is on, right? By the time you've been fudging the receipts and cooking the books, it's already too late. Or by the time you've already uh, made that, you know, uh, appointment to have drinks with someone you're not married to, that you're interested in, by that time, it's too late. Or the time that you and I are writing that text and about ready to fight, it's too late. I mean, the time to escape temptation is before then. The time to escape temptation is actually the place of desire, I was thinking about uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, and when uh, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, fall into sin. The time of the sin really wasn't when they reached for the fruit off the tree. Rather, it was that moment where they both, in their desire, turned and looked at that tree and were told the fruit then appeared pleasing to them. And so, leaders don't just monitor themselves at the point of action. They monitor themselves at the point of desire, being honest about their desires, able to confess their desires in safety in a community. That's where the real protection comes. But it's not just a matter of putting off sinful desire. It's putting on godly desire. In the book of Galatians, we get a similar list to this one. Not exactly. Some of you may know it. It's called the fruit of the Spirit what it means to have a a fruitful life by God's Spirit. And how are those traits cultivated? Is it simply by willpower? Of course not. If you read that in the book of Galatians, it's by the grace of God. Paul says a similar thing in the book of Ephesians. He says it used to be that you were controlled by sensuality. You know, just by pleasure. You're just going to do it. It used to be you were greedy and hungry to practice different forms of impurity, every form of impurity. But he said... This is the change. Why does the change come? Because that is not the way you learned Christ. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say that isn't the way that you learned to behave or you learned a law, but you learned a person. Learning a person is much different than learning a law or a behavior code because only as you learn Christ, you see His love for you. You see the groom that loves the bride. You see the elder brother who loves the younger sister and brother. You see, he's the only one that can fill your desire where you're hungry and thirsty. And then that enables you and I then to live godly lives, to have godly character. So, the character of a leader is put before us, but I want to spend the the remaining time and a little bit more of the time on roles. Now, there are two offices that are indicated here, two offices in the church. The one we would refer to as the diaconate, and the second would be uh, the elders together. Now, in the diaconate, you find that both men and women are uh, mentioned. In fact, I had us purposely read a passage that translates not the wives of deacons, but the women. And I did that because you should know that the Greek word does not mean wives, or just women. It's interchangeable. In fact, we'll never really know until heaven. But I would say that the context lends us to believe that it would be wives, but rather that it would be women, because that's the way it's used in the passage. That even if you don't buy that, wives are a subset of what? Women, right? So either way, you have women involved in the diaconate. And I think Paul wouldn't be saying there that it's only married women that can do diaconate work. Because he doesn't say that about elders. Paul was a single elder. Timothy was likely single. And so the bottom line is you have men and women at work in the diaconate together, which we try to represent here in our church, both involved in that. Both are screened, both we elect. Uh, now in this uh, particular denomination, there continues to be a debate because uh, women maybe uh, men are ordained women commissioned. But that, again, is a continual point of debate, and you can pray for that debate. But, however, the role of elder, only men are addressed. And this is actually a pattern that runs all throughout Scripture. Uh, In the Old Testament, you will have women prophetess, and you will have women uh, judicial rulers like Deborah, but you find there are no women priests. And then as you move on, and, and actually talk about limitations, I had us read that Old Testament passage to, to, to have you see that it wasn't just women that were limited from the priesthood. Most of the men were. Only Levite priests. And you might ask yourself, I imagine there were some Israelites that would say, why can't I be a priest, daddy? A son. He'd say, well, you're not a Levite. I don't understand that. Talk to God when you get to heaven. He's got his reasons. But you find again that principle of limitation. And then when we move to the New Testament, Jesus chooses 12 male apostles. Some folk will say, well, Jesus was doing that to capitulate to the culture. It's hard for me to believe because Jesus was killed, basically, for cultural rebellion. And then when you move into the New Testament, Timothy and Titus uh, reinforce that as well, only men. Earlier in the chapter, Paul wrote this. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now... Careful. Many theologians... Anyway, many theologians... Many theologians believe that those two words really are a pair. That those two words go together. uh, Like spaghetti and meatballs. You know, if you order spaghetti and meatballs, you're not expecting spaghetti over here and meatballs. But they're working together. So this is a particular kind of teaching that he's talking about. It's an authoritative teaching which we understand to be preaching and church discipline. And so we don't understand, we don't understand it to be that women are excluded from all teaching. And I'm going to uh, hopefully explain that a little bit more as we get into the examples in the New Testament. But as you go into this passage, Paul then says a few other things in the chapter before. He says that a woman should learn in quietness with all submissiveness. He brings up the historical account of Eve being deceived. And then he says women will be saved by childbirth. What in the world is he talking about? How do we understand that? If you've read those passages, you're like, whoa, that just totally offends me. I don't understand it. Let me try to shed some light on it. And here we're talking about a biblical principle I try to bring up regularly because people go off the rails when they forget it. And that is you read the Bible in light of the Bible. You read the unclear in light of the clear. You read the part in light of the whole. And so if you went to the book of Corinthians, you find a similar admonition about women learning in quietness. But three chapters earlier, Paul is giving them instructions about their prophesying and praying in the worship service. So obviously he's not talking about literal silence there because the women are engaged in that activity. And I don't believe he's talking about temperament either, that a godly woman must be meek and introverted. Hey, if that's you, amen. Amen. But a woman can fulfill this passage and be strong and demonstrative and extroverted. Not talking about temperament. And then he moves on about Eve's deception. But the point cannot be that women are more prone to being deceived than men. Because I know men. And actually the Bible is full of men that got deceived. In fact, you could maybe make an argument they're more prone to be deceived. Rather, what Jeremiah says is that the sinful heart is deceived. And so what does that mean? I believe it means this. When Eve rejected the authority of God, she was deceived. When Eve rejected that place and that role, she was deceived. Just like anybody that pushes off the authority of God, which relates to this idea of childbirth. Uh, Obviously, Paul is not being literal. It's a figurative statement. Nowhere does the Bible teach we're saved by doing works, like having babies. it would be crazy and absurd to think that he's saying that only women that get married and have babies are saved. But rather what he's talking about there is as a woman perseveres in her God-given call, it's evidence that she really believes. It's evidence of her faith. And so... As we round off, I believe what Paul is talking about here is attitudinal. And by the way, the non-ordained men aren't off the hook because they as well need to submit to the elders' authority in teaching. It's both non-ordained women and non-ordained men. And so I now want to move in just for a second to talk about women ministry because I feel like you got to do that because women too often hear what they can't do. Well, the Bible is full of fruitful ministry of women. When you start in the book of the Bible to the end, one thing is clear. Men and women are equal. They are made in the image of God and the likeness of God. Nowhere do you find a command that women are to submit to all men. Nowhere do you find that. The Bible is not a patriarchy. A patriarchy is that only and all men are in positions of power and they don't share it. But actually, most men are not in those positions of power. Very few men are elders compared to that many. So you have both men and women. And also, the elders don't hoard the power. They share the power. And so it doesn't qualify as what people would say is a patriarchy. And also, as you start the book of Genesis, and the God talks about the kingdom, both the men and the women are told to go off and be fruitful and cultivate the world which means all sorts of uh, jobs and vocations, which is a very important point. When we're talking about these particular roles of uh, men as eldership, or I would say in marriage, we'll get to in a couple weeks, as a husband, as a leader, we're not talking about the marketplace. You know, a woman is blessed if she's a CEO. She's blessed if she is an engineer. She's blessed if she's a stay-at-home mom. She's blessed if she's an athlete. She's blessed if she's a soldier. In the marketplace, God is blessing the work of women. But in the Bible, more importantly, you see this modeled. Let me just do a quick run through. Miriam, the prophet, is the one that leads the congregation in worship when God has delivered his people through the Red Sea. Deborah ruled over Israel for a time. She was a prophet and a judge. We're told that she sat under a palm tree and they would come and bring their uh, concerns and she would make judgment for them. Ruth, a godly woman, is given the great privilege of being the great grandmother of King David. Queen Esther saves the people of God from extinction. And that line is where the Messiah would come from. So essentially she saves the line that would save the Messiah. Proverbs 31 talks about the ideal woman, and what do we read about the ideal woman? She's not only a faithful mom and a faithful mother, but she's also involved in industry, textiles, real estate, selling fields, and mercy. And by the way, that's not like a lean-in passage for women, right? That's the ideal profile of, you know, it's like the every woman woman. It's not one woman could never do all of that. Uh, she would, you know, anyway. Um Then move to the New Testament. Mary and Joseph, they bring Jesus to the temple. And who's one of the people that gets to greet him? Anna the prophetess. And it also says that Anna at that point then began to speak and instruct those that were there at the temple about the redemption of Israel. And then we come to the book of Acts. Priscilla, who marries a husband named Aquila. Who would have thought that would have happened, right? (laughs) But her name's Priscilla. And her name actually comes first out of the pair. But when Apollos, a rising young seminary student's preaching, they understand he doesn't really know as much, and so it says they came, pulled him aside and they instructed him more clearly in the way of Christ. Again, you have women teaching in the body. She's referred to as a fellow worker, the same language that's used of Timothy, Mark, and Luke, and other women. And then, believe it or not, Paul, the author of the passage we read, is really the greater, greatest promoter of the women that work in ministry. And I, I don't have time to go through all the names he mentions, but Phoebe, who he calls a diaconess, which we get the word deaconess from or deacon from. She's a leader in the church in Centria. Chloe, who's a leader in Corinth. And then Rufus' mother. Don't forget Rufus' mother. Because Paul won't. Paul says she was a spiritual mother to me. And so the Apostle Paul, you know, had these women regularly involved in his ministry, but more so, let's end on the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, we're told in Luke, traveled with the twelve, but he also traveled with Mary, Susanna, and Joanna, who funded his ministry. It was the women who stayed by his side when the disciples had fled, even though it put them in a very vulnerable position. More so, it was to the women that God gave the great privilege to be the first witness of the resurrection. In a time in the ancient world where their testimony was not regarded, God says, your testimony is regarded. The point is this. The church of Jesus Christ, that story is a story of faithful, gifted, godly women who sustained and advanced the kingdom of God. Now, anybody that looked at the modern church would get that because you can move into a lot of churches and and see that women do most of the ministry. But sadly, they don't get most of the recognition many times. Now, in the ideal church, right, our church, we want to be laboring that Everybody is doing the work. But let me just turn around and get to why then does God have a select number of men serve in this office? And I think the language in Timothy gives us insight. You find in the book of Timothy, first of all, the primary metaphor. Does anybody know the primary metaphor for the church? Bride of Christ? Wrong. Wrong. I'll give you a hint. We, we've used the language a couple of years ago family. The family of God. That's the primary metaphor, okay? And uh, you'll notice Paul refers to Timothy as his son. He says you need to treat older men like fathers, you need to treat older women like mothers, you need to treat younger women like sisters with absolute purity. And then he talks about an elder managing his family. So what I'm telling you is there's this whole family analogy, family theme that he's drawing upon here. I will tell you that managing family has been the hardest role that I've had. And it has been the one that it was, the thing that it has required mostly of me has been humility. Taking the low place. <laughs> being instructed by my wife and my children in my place of leadership. But why does Paul do this, this family language? And this is my understanding of this, that God doesn't make some men in this role of elders because they're better spiritually than other men and women. No. He doesn't do it because they have all the gifts. That's certainly true. In fact, one of my favorite teachers of the Bible is a woman. He doesn't do it for that reason. He does it because he is trying to reveal something, and that is the fatherhood of God. He has is, he is selected and chosen these elders that they might model fathering, spiritual fathering in the family of God. That's why he does it. In my family, my wife is my equal. And uh, she has gifts that I don't have. We work together. She, her mothering role is very important. I have a fathering role. It's very important. And the God has deemed God has deemed that in the church He wants that influence of a fathering. So implications to wrap this up, and then just quickly hit some roles of elder and deacon. The implications for the church of this that both non ordained men and women are free to joyfully freely, liberally, and powerfully use their gifts, whether it be teaching, evangelism, hospitality, service. And that's what we try to practice. You see, the way I imagine Corinthians going down is you're in the worship service, and this was a time where prophecy was continuing. And so you have men prophesying, you have women prophesying, men you know praying, all this stuff is being shared. The body of Christ is teaching, sharing the Word of God. And then maybe they pause and they look over at the elder and he goes, you know, he, he's there to say, well, you know, actually that isn't, uh, that isn't consonant with what, what Moses said, but, but they aren't doing all the ministry. But how do we do this with, how do we understand these roles? First of all, an elder, that word means presbyteros. This is why we're Presbyterians, because we understand that elder is the highest form of of government, spiritual government. You don't have all these, you know, I'm sorry to my Catholic friends and maybe even my Anglican friends that, you know, bishop is a translation of overseer, but overseer, elder, shepherd, they're all the same office. There's no pope office. There's no cardinal office. It's just elders and deaconate, deacon, deaconess. And so these elders, what are they called to do? Spiritual oversight. Oversee the doctrine and the life of the church, that the life is reflecting the beauty of the word and the righteousness of the word. Their focus is on word and prayer primarily and shepherding the people of God. And when you come to, and in the PCA, we have teaching elders and ruling elders. That's because there's a verse that seems to delineate that some teachers, uh, some elders taught more. And so we call those pastors. But they are equal together. And one of the things you find is that there is parity of elders in plurality. Parity means equality. Plurality means you can't have a church with just one elder to protect it from abuse. So you have several elders. And then when you come to the diaconate, that word is translated servant or minister. They minister to the need in the church, the friendless, those that are stressed, those that have physical needs. They develop mercy and justice in the grace of giving in the congregation. I think the diaconate does something so critical, and that is they protect the church from being hypocrites. That's what James says, you know, be warm and well-fed. They protect the church from being basically word but no deed to back it up. And so they lead us in that work. Next week we'll talk a little bit about creeds and confessions, but let me close by saying this. In the New Testament, both the elders and the diaconate don't do all the ministry. The book of Ephesians says that God gave the pastors and teachers and elders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so you are to be equipped and empowered to find your ministry and do your ministry because there is a priesthood of all believers. And God is working through his people, these ambassadors of Christ. I mean, one of the reasons we establish what we call the Women's Leadership Council is because the elders, being men, need help in shepherding our sisters. We need knowledge. We need understanding. We need instruction. We need support. And so these sisters help as well as the deaconess. So the character and roles of the church are essentially this opportunity for us to think differently about leadership. And so I would ask you in closing, as you think about leadership, is your mind more formed by the culture or more formed by the kingdom of Jesus? Let me pray. Father, uh, I know that this uh, passage has a lot of difficult things. Um, For some people it might be hurtful, confusing, others uh, confirming. Father, but would you take your word? I pray that you would throw out the dross and the things that aren't helpful. And I pray the things that are true would take root and bear fruit in our congregation. In Christ's name, amen.